Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We get lots of parent requests on Brummy Mummies. Questions about parenting that it's sometimes hard to ask friends and family. So we thought it would be great to put these questions to renowned family psychologist, Dr. Marta Deros Calado. She has advice on everything from sleeping to sibling battles to tantrums and tears. Welcome back to Brummy Mummies. My name is Zoe Chamberlain. I'm a journalist, author and mum. I launched Brummy Mummies as a community for families to share with you stories from the most inspiring mums and dads to help you find out how they juggle family life and everything that comes with it. How many times have you wished that your child had come with a handbook? Mylene Class reckons Dr. Marta's book, How to Be the Grown-Up, is about as close as you can get. Let's get straight into talking to her now. Hi, Dr. Martha. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, it's um, it's great. I love your book. I love the title of it. Why do you think that we sometimes forget to be the grown-up in our relationship with our kids? I mean, I think it's easy as adults with our busy lives to just keep going. And one of the things that I think gets in the way of the choices we make around children is that we see children as mini adults, especially when they are really good, really fluent at speaking or reading, or, you know, we see them learning all these skills. And so what we think is, well, they can do all of this. So they must be closer to you and I, when actually children are not mini adults at all. They're in development and their brain is really immature, even in adolescence. Their brain hasn't like fully matured, developed certain areas of the brain. So that can mean that what we forget to do is be the grown up in terms of take a more sensible or sensitive approach to our children, because what we're doing is placing our adult expectations on them and they're not quite ready for that yet. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. I can see that with my kids. I've done that in the past. I think especially when you've got a nice relationship with them, it's easier to do that, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do it too. So I think it's all of us. I don't think it's, um, it's a really hard thing to do to stay in grown up mode all the time. It's a really hard thing to do. And I think especially when you have, um, you know, when you have a baby, I think we all say, oh, I wish there was a, they came with a manual. And what you've done is put together this toolkit, which is great. So could you give us maybe a sprinkling of five of your top tips for new parents? Yeah. So I guess my first top tip is you can't spoil them with cuddles, love, holding. You can't spoil them. So that's not going to happen. My second tip is about the more you do give nurture to your baby through touch and comfort and love and all those great elements that you do, you're building their brain. The third one is, especially if you're a new parent, a first parent, is you're not wasting your time where you're just sitting around feeding baby, holding baby. This is all part of what supports their development. 
it's not wasted time and it's definitely not nothing when it comes to like looking at the brain. Um, you're not going to make a rod for your own back when you're supporting your child to sleep, whatever that looks like, holding them, contact naps, going for a walk on a pram. None of that is going to build a rod for your own back. Children need your support when they're sleeping um, to learn to sleep, I should say. And my last one, when babies cry, it's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. Your baby's just communicating that they need help in some way. And sometimes baby don't even know what they need because babies have no clue. So it's okay to just reach out and hold them with like love and warmth and just rock them or do whatever. But it's also okay if your baby just keeps crying. Like as long as you're with your baby, baby's not coming to harm when they're crying. This is just part of their process. And I really want parents to know like you're not failing your baby if they're crying a lot. I think if you have a baby that cries a lot consistently and where you really struggle to settle them no matter what you do, I would say to parents, you really need to go and see a doctor because there might be something wrong with your baby, like some form of like pain or discomfort because babies don't just do this, right? Babies don't just yeah. cry for the sake of crying, but it doesn't make you a failure if that's the case because I think lots of parents feel like it's a personal thing on them. If my baby cries, that makes me bad at parenting. I think you feel that pressure, especially if you're out and about, people look and think, oh, why can't she stop her baby crying? It's interesting you talk about some of the bigger, darker issues of parenting as well, that sometimes we feel like maybe we can't broach with friends and family, like about honesty and lies and feelings and control. Do you think it's helpful to talk to other people about this? if you're having those kind of problems with your child? Well, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> because I believe that talking is helpful. I think what I would say, like couch it in, is talking is helpful, but you need to choose your people to talk about these things with. So rather than bottling it up, yes, do talk about it when you're having struggles with your child or with yourself or with your partner. But choose your people. And if you can, and you're beginning to talk about something that makes you feel vulnerable, try and name that with the other person. Like it makes so much more sense and it will feel so much safer if you say to, let's say, your best friend, I have something I want to share with you, but it's a topic I'm not very comfortable with. And I don't know if I'm going to talk about it right but I feel like maybe if I talk about it, it'll make me feel better. So when we speak in that way to another adult, what it does is helps the other adult become more compassionate, like straight away. Because straight away, you're like, oh my God, thank you. You're trusting me with this information. Mm -hmm. And it can help, you know, the receiver be more open. Also, it can help the receiver listen rather than just be there to give you advice. Because I think sometimes when we share these difficult or I think, you know, dark topics with people, we don't want tons of advice. What we want is to be heard and we want to be understood in this moment of struggle. So when we open up a conversation in that way, it doesn't have to be exactly those words, but you know, in a way that kind of says, I want to talk about something that's difficult for me. Are you willing to be there? You will get the response that helps you kind of connect over that topic. And hopefully, even if it doesn't get resolved, it'll make you feel better. That's so smart because that instantly takes the pressure off them to immediately start thinking of solutions for you, doesn't it? Yes. I like and I think that. often That's we really don't good. want solutions. 
Yeah. Not straight away. Sometimes we're just like, what do I do with this? Although that's the question. What do I do with this? What you want is somebody to go, wow, that's really hard. I can see why you're struggling. And then suddenly it just becomes easier because it's like, I'm not alone in this anymore. There's somebody else I can talk to. There's somebody else who understands me. Does that make sense? And 100%. Because actually when you just vocalise it, sometimes you come up with the solution yourself, don't you? Just putting it out there, it comes to you. Absolutely. Just the process of, yeah, reflecting on it can be enough. And it's the same with our kids. You know, when they come to us with tricky things, tricky topics, they often just want you to be like, I'm here for you, I'm listening, rather than I've got a solution, let's do X, Y, and Z. That's not always the case. Sometimes they do want you to be a solution. But if you just slow it down and do this first, it often feels much safer, like much more comfortable and less heavy carrying something around that might be difficult. It might be that they'd be more likely to do it again which is what you want. Absolutely. So I saw a post you did and I loved it, all about the things you should never say to your child. (laughs) So could you you tell us what some of those are? Uh, I'll I'll tell a few. I mean, the thing is, we all say these things, okay? So I'm going to catch it in that. We all do it. And I know teachers do it. Other people do it. It's not going to harm children that we do it, but sometimes it helps to just be aware of how much we do it. And... Is it useful, basically, right? So it's like the don't is try not to rather than never, ever say this to your child. (laughs) But things like use your words. When we say that to children, it's often when they're not able to tell us something. They're often crying or whining or, you know, in that place of, ah, mommy. And so we're like, use your words. I can't understand you. But as soon as we do that, we're dismissing their emotional experience and in that moment if they had the words they would use them they're not using them to wind you up they're not using them because their emotion has flooded their brain and children are emotional first and then verbal okay children like emotion trumps children all the time and it's because of their brain it's because of where they are in development so the thing that we can do more usefully is when they're like "Ah," is use our words let them I talk about letting them borrow your words so you speak for your child if you can and most of the time you will have a sense of what they're asking for even if the sense is they want you to listen so if that's the only sense you have you can say you can say mommy I want to listen to you but first let's breathe or let's take a moment I'm gonna get you a drink Ah, I know and I'm here for you just wait you know like let's teach our children some skills when we're really heightened in emotion we can't have a conversation that's what we should be trying to teach our children right Mm. and it's the same with adults if you're really angry with your partner it's not the best moment to start the conversation when you're feeling enraged or like oh I'm really wound up at something it's a better moment to say I'm really angry and I have something to talk to you about but not right now because I'm going to say the wrong thing because that's true so why don't we start with our kids because the earlier we start, the easier it is to then do this when they're grown-ups. Another one is like go kiss Lanny or give give somebody a hug, you know, like an auntie at Christmas or even a friend or something, you know, hug them goodbye. Because for me, that's a breach of consent. And I know consent is not something that I learnt. 
when I was growing up. Um, so it feels like it's quite like a new concept when actually for me, it's a safeguarding tool. We are safeguarding our children from harm with others and we are teaching them what the experience is, like a healthy, safe experience of saying no to something and that being respected. And that for me is really important with children and teenagers that we don't force them to kiss or hug or even say things like say thank you like you don't have to force it on your child allow them the experience of that coming from them and with consent to me that's really important so instead we should be offering children options like we're leaving now. Do you want to give a cuddle to Nanny or do you want to give her a high five or do you just want to say, bye Nanny, see you soon? Like we want to give them the experience of saying goodbye is important, okay? Being polite is important, whatever it is, but we're not going to force it. What we're going to do is model and we're going to teach skills because when we do that, our children are going to learn it, but in a way that is safe and helps them know when they're in a relationship with somebody else, when somebody is not being safe with them, because they'll say, but wait, wait a minute, when I say no to something, that usually is heard and respected, and you're now breaching my boundaries, so that makes me feel uncomfortable that you might not be a very safe person. So for me, that's a really important one. Uh, What else should we not say to our kids? I would not say I'm disappointed. Okay, that is, for me, that's quite an important one, as parents to reflect on. When we say to our children, oh, I'm not angry with you, I'm disappointed. What we're doing is shaming our kids. And when we shame children or when we shame anybody, it is not like conducive to learning because shame is a terrible teacher. So if you're annoyed at your child, tell your child. It is much healthier to tell your child that you're angry or you're sad or you're anxious about something rather than use shame to make them do better next time. So for example, you might say, I'm really stressed that you are painting on the couch. I don't like it. You're going to put paint on the couch and it's going to make me really angry because then we have to clean it up. So please, can we move the paints and the paper onto the floor? for example. It's okay to say that. And it's important that you don't say, I'm really angry that you are doing something naughty, for example. So what we're going to do is focus on the behavior first. And we're going to own our emotions rather than, why are you so naughty painting on the couch? How many times have I told you not to do that? When we do that, we infer that the child is naughty and that it's what they're doing that makes us angry, rather than it's the behaviour. It's not them, okay? It's not your child who's doing this. So um, rather than saying I'm disappointed, I think as adults we need to own our emotions more. I think we need to get more comfortable about speaking about how certain behaviours or actions in our children make us feel so that they don't feel shame and they can learn a useful kind of, Model through modeling, they can learn usefully what to do in those occasions for them as well. Rather than blame others, what they're doing is saying, This is how this is making me feel. Yes. Yeah, that's really helpful for later life, isn't it? So, 
we've got some questions that um, have been asked by parents in our Brummie Mummies group. Um, so I'd like to put them to you if that's okay. I think it's really, it'd be really helpful if you could answer some of them. So they are just scenarios that people have come across. So one said, my eight-year-old boy doesn't listen to me at all. I have to ask him 10 or more times to do something and he still keeps on until I scream. What can I do? So firstly, eight-year-old brains are not that dissimilar to four-year-old brains. So what's happening with your child is pretty normal. So it's very normal because eight-year-olds are not that dissimilar to four-year-olds in terms of their brain development. Your child is probably so engrossed in an activity that what happens is when you ask them to do something like put on their shoes or whatever, tidy up, if they're not motivated by that activity, they ba- their ears basically shut down. And that's really normal because they're just engrossed in in the here and now, which is what their brains are doing. So what can you do? You can get closer to your child rather than shout, okay? Get really close to the point where you're like next to your child. I always say to parents, try and get eye contact or at least be able to use touch in a warm way. So you're not grabbing your child, but you might touch them on the arm and you might say their name, you know, whatever it is. Danny, hey, we need to go now. Can we get your shoes on? Okay, so one, Use a quiet voice rather than shouting because the the more like quiet you make it, the more children have to pay attention to what you say. And if they're really engrossed in an activity, focus on that first. So what you're going to do is connect with what they're connected in, engaged in, to then pull them out with you, take them somewhere else. What happens is most parents will say, I don't have time to do this. But what I would say is, think of the time that you spend shouting having a battle with your child, running around the house, whatever it is, that atmosphere is not very nice and it often leaves you and your child not feeling great before you leave the house, for example. Instead, you could spend some of that time doing this, connecting, like using your feet, using your voice, using your gestures to bring calm and connection to a situation so that then what you're doing is leaving probably faster because this often helps kids move a little bit quicker. But also, if it's not faster, you will at least not be leaving with this atmosphere of tension that you're leaving the house with. So I always say I prefer using my time this way than, you know, the big escalation of shouting from you. That's really helpful. Here's another one. My son annoys his brother a lot by calling him names and using silly voices until he gets cross and hits him. If I set consequences, he gets upset for a minute or two, but then later on it doesn't matter to him at all. Help. So what I would say as quickly as I can is consequences are not going to help your child. They're just going to make them feel bad. But you're not teaching your child what to do instead. And often with siblings, that sibling who is winding up, you know, calling silly names, all of that is trying, it's a bid for connection, right? They're trying to say to their sibling, I want to play with you. I want to do something with you. And the thing that gets them the biggest reaction is this. So instead, that child needs a bit of time with you to learn how to connect appropriately. So what I would do is when you start to spot it, you can call them over. Hey, come here. Come here. I've got something to tell you. Bring them around. And then I would say to them, you really want to do something with your brother, don't you? You really want to play with them or get them to talk to you or whatever. Be silly with him. I've got a better way of getting you to play with your brother than like winding them up. Or whatever it is, you might be like, 
do you guys want to play this card game? Or do you want to do blah, blah, blah? Do you want to tell him that he can go and play football with you? You want to engage your child and give them tools. So what they say is, can you come and play with me rather than poke and wind up? And with your other child, you need to set some clear boundaries about hitting not being okay. It doesn't matter how much somebody winds you up. Hitting them is not okay. And one of the tools you might teach them is, When your brother starts to wind you up or gets annoying, it's okay to say, mum, help me. It's okay to come and get me and say, oh, they're being really annoying. I just want some time with my toys or on my own or whatever. And for you as a parent to say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to protect your space, your toys, your time from your sibling. So come and get me or use your voice and I will come but no hitting is allowed in this house. And when your children see you as a useful adult, not a punishing or threatening adult, they see you as, you're going to help me. They will come and get your help because they know it works. And when your child sees that you help them learn skills that still get them what they want, I get to play with my brother and now I know how to do it. They're going to listen to you. So although this feels like it takes time, everything takes time, It works and it works in a way that is sustainable because your kids are learning skills to be in a relationship as siblings for life. And then for future relationships going forward as well. I've got one here that's about a younger child. Um, So she says, my three-year-old has the most almighty tantrums. He um, throws things around, bangs his head on the floor. My mother-in-law says it's just a stage and he'll grow out of it. But what can I do in the meantime? I feel like I can't take him anywhere at the moment. So three-year-olds have more tantrums than two-year-olds. This is a fact. So you're not doing anything wrong. Your mother-in-law is right. Um, This is a stage and they're going to grow out of it. And in the meantime, what you have to do is remain really, really calm in those moments when the tantrum hits. But if if you're saying it's preventing you from going out of the house, that's not great. So I would say try and be a uh, play detective a little bit. You need to see what situations trigger your child into a tantrum. And at this age, it tends to be basic needs. So it tends to be things like hunger, um, being really tired, being overwhelmed by stimulation. So it can be sounds or noise or lots of people, like going to a supermarket with lots of lights and people. Sometimes kids, by the time you know, you're leaving the supermarket, they're in floods. And it's because there's just too much going on for them. So you need to think, what are the things that are trigger points for my child exploding in a tantrum? And what can you do to adapt them? Because there is always adaptations you can make. So if you know one of the triggers is hunger, which often happens with little ones, make sure that you offer your child regular snacks at regular times across the day. So it's not to avoid, you know, any kind of um, disagreement with your child, but you want to help them feel like their tummies are full, so they're not going to tantrum. So instead they might say, I want a snack, but they're not screaming and shouting, I want a snack, because that's a different you're, you're on a different place on the scale, if that makes sense. So um, you want to try and prevent it. And then you want, to, when they come, to just stay really, really calm. And also just remember, this is normal. It's a part of development. It says nothing about you as a parent. You're not failing your child. So if you go out in public and your child has a tantrum, I want you to know that's really normal. That's what healthy children do. And 
any judgment that you perceive from other parents, I want you to really, in your mind, I know most of us will like look down or look at our kids and avoid the gaze from others. But if you looked up and saw the gaze of other parents, they're all smiling in compassion at you because they've all been there, me included. So don't feel judgment. Because actually, when you're out and about, what often will happen is somebody will try and help you or be like, are you okay? Or, you know, your child's like, I want a drink. And you're like, I don't have a drink. I forgot it. Ah. Somebody will come along and be like, do you want some water from, it's my kid's water bottle. Would you like some? That's actually happened to me. So I know it's true and it does happen. And I think as parents, we can be more compassionate and united in public if we all remember that kids are kids. Like, It's not a reflection on us. They do what they do because that's how their brain is wired. And if we could all be more compassionate and kinder to each other, then we can get through this stage like feeling okay about ourselves and okay about our kids, which is one of the things I really wanted to bring out in my book, like the normality of all of it. Because that's kind of one of my hopes that we all feel more compassionate towards kids, but also towards each other and just go, we can get through this together. It's okay. It's going to pass. Yes. And that's how we always feel in the Brummy Mummies group. We're all in it together. You know, that's what it's all about. So I've got one here that's about parents instead. So um, she said, my husband doesn't get involved in dealing with our kids when they misbehave. That's all left to me. He just wants to do the fun stuff with them. I'm exhausted. What can I do? It is exhausting. What I'm going to say is easier to say than do, but you need to have a conversation with your husband, like, about this and be really honest and open about the fact that parenting is not always fun. Parenting is hard and you can't just be the fun parent. There needs to be support. You need to feel like you're a team. You're co-parenting as a team. And, you know, I think often there is one parent who's a bit more silly or a bit more like happy-go-lucky than another. And that's okay as long as you both feel supported. So even if it's you at times taking more um, the the role of like setting the boundaries or teaching the skills with your kids, maybe because you're there more than your partner, it's important that you with your partner think of ways where you collect and spend time together so that you can share how exhausting this is and what the things are that you've done with your kids and you can feel supported by them. So for example, having a little meeting every evening. So me and my husband do this. When the kids are in bed, we usually have about 15 minutes in the evening where we talk about the kids. And we talk about the things that usually I've done because he's at work. And we talk about, you know, especially now I've got a little baby, I will talk about the things I've done with her, the things that have been really hard. And what I want my husband to do is to validate, to listen, to tell me I'm doing a good job when I'm like, today's been horrible, it's been an awful day. And that's enough to make me feel like he wasn't there, but we're in this together. And then after those 15, 20 minutes, what we do of our evening is not talk about the kids. <laughs> and like we do something else. We watch a film, we watch it, not film, film, but we watch bits of film sometimes, or we talk about something else or whatever. But sometimes having like a couple's meeting, whatever you want to call it, a check-in with each other, can feel really supportive. And as part of that check-in, it is about telling each other your needs. So it's important that you tell your partner that it doesn't work for you the way that it's going. And what support do you need from your partner? Like actively ask them for what you need 
don't expect them to know just from looking at you what you need. Tell them what you need and then make it happen together. Like that's what I would do. Yes. Yeah. And just like you said earlier, to do it kind of choose your moment rather than doing it in the heat of the moment when you're angry. Yes. Um, There's one here that's a bit different. Older child. Um, My daughter is 11 and she seems to be sad a lot of the time. I don't know how to reach her and it's really upsetting me. Oh, what a thoughtful, caring mummy. I mean, parent, who knows, but I'm assuming it's a mummy. Um, I think if you're worried about your child, I would always listen to your gut. Always, always. I The thing that you can do is sit with your child and say to them, I've noticed that you're sad and I don't know what to do. But do you... Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk about what's going on with you? Do you? Can I just sit here with you and read my book while you do X, Y and Z? You know, being with your child when they're sad. That is a really powerful thing. Just being there, even if they can't tell you why they're sad, because your child might not know. They might just have a feeling. And sadness kind of needs comfort and company. And when we feel safe, this kind of goes back to something we were talking about before, but when we feel really safe, with somebody sometimes that allows us to speak up but I would also say with this question if the sadness has been going on for a long time and you are concerned about your child go and see a medical professional you don't have to wait until something big happens to seek support seek support even if it's just to get reassurance but also the message it gives your child is you care about me you're interested in me, you care about me, you see the sadness as something serious. And I'm going to say this because they said they're 11. Even if your child goes, I don't want to go to the doctor, I promise that there's a part of that 11-year-old going, thank you. Because when they get older, what they'll remember is, my parent cared enough to take me to a doctor. They saw my sadness and they were worried about it. And they sought support, even though I didn't want it because I was sad. Because sadness will sometimes make us do choices that aren't healthy for us. But that doesn't mean that they don't want them, if that makes sense, that they don't want the help. So that's what I would say to this parent. Um, Sit with it, listen to it and seek support if you're really concerned and it's been going on for a while. Thank you. We've got loads of questions um, and this is amazing, but I know we're we're tight on time. So I'm going to go for this one as a last one. Um, And it's, my daughter keeps having nightmares and she wants me to stay with her constantly. I'm trying to be firm and make sure she sleeps on her own, but I often give up and just sleep with her just to get some rest myself. What should I do? Firstly, I think you're doing great. It's okay to give your child what she needs while she's got these nightmares. Nightmares are not things kids make up, you know. They happen and they're also a part of brain development. So depending on your daughter's age, this might be very, very normal. And again, something that passes, maybe set up like a mattress next to her for a while and just accept that you might end up in the night lying next to her until she falls asleep. But if the nightmares keep going, they can be a sign of stress, right? It is a sign of brain development, but it can be a sign of something stressful or anxiety provoking happening. So spend some time during the day to talk about your daughter's nightmares. Ask her what they're about. Ask her why why she thinks they've happened. Is there something going on that she's worried about? And then if there is, if there are a few kind of ideas that emerge from these conversations, 
try and work on it during the day, not at night time. Okay, so if she's got some worries, maybe you can make some plans of action about what to do for that. If she's actually really scared at bedtime that she's going to have a nightmare, then you need to work on the nightmares during the day. And what that looks like is talk about the nightmares, talk about the point where she wakes up and then finish the story. Because we always wake up at the worst point in a nightmare, obviously, but we don't see the end. So we can create an end. And the way that I would do this like therapeutically with a child, but as a parent, you can do this, is to create a ending that is either positive or really funny. Because if we laugh, we can't be scared. So, you know, I don't know, there's a monster and it shows up and it's about to grab her and then she wakes up. You could end up by saying, well, as the monster's coming towards you, this big, black, hairy thing, maybe what happens is, whoop, it trips on a banana. And then what happens? You know, and like build a story and then talk about that story before bedtime. Hopefully it makes your child giggle. You know your child best in terms of the words to use and how to do this. But if they're giggling before bedtime, what happens is they won't be so scared and it's less likely that the nightmare will happen again. That's great advice. So we have a series of questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, so I'm going to ask those of you now. What are the two things you would tell your 18-year-old self if you had the chance? I found this question really hard. <laughs> um, but I think I would say you're braver than you think. And it's okay to just be you. I just think when I was 18, I was scared of not fitting in. I think it's quite a common fear. And it's taken me a long time to realise that I don't have to fit in at all. <laughs> like, I can just be me and me is enough. And I wish as a, an 18 year old, you could go back and say that to somebody. But I think most 18 year olds don't feel like they're enough. You know, they feel like they've got to fit in. And now with social media, they're all like, I need to look this way or dress that way or whatever. Um, and I just wish it was just something that we could you know, that knowledge that it was something that we could hold at that age. But I, I fear that it might just be something that we have to experience ourselves, if that makes sense, to kind of grow through it and then yeah. realise. Yeah, it's hard to realise that at that young age, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. What three things do you love to do each day? What gives you a great start, end or routine to the day? So I love a coffee in the morning. <laughs> I love coffee. I love the smell of coffee. Yeah. So definitely a large coffee for me in the mornings is something I look forward to. Um, I love a, a nature walk or a run outside in nature. I find nature really grounding and I love seeing like the seasons pass. So if you go outside a lot, you notice the seasons, but it's something that we miss otherwise. And I find that really calming. Yeah, it grounds me in this idea of things pass, change comes, you know, but there's also a cycle. So I don't know, I find that really hopeful and um, yeah, calming and grounding for me. And the other third thing is I always try and plan something I look forward to for the end of the day. So it could just be something really small, like I'm going to have a biscuit, <laughs> like when the kids are in bed, or it might be, oh, I'm going to watch an episode of something, or I'm going to read a chapter of some book I'm looking forward to, or I'm going to call a friend, or I'm going to text a friend, you know, something really like small and doable because I'm going to do it. But 
when I plan it at the earlier in the day, then I have something to look forward to. And I find that really motivating. Like sometimes in the afternoon when things are a bit sluggish or hard, I'm like, oh, but later I'm doing this thing. So that's what I do. That's such a good idea. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, just it doesn't have to be a big thing, just a little something to look forward to. What's the one piece of advice you would give to a parent who's struggling? I know that's kind of broad, but if they feel like they're struggling, what, what would you say? I would say, I want you to remember that you're not alone in your, in your struggle because most of the things parents struggle with are not, they're not on their own. Somebody else is struggling with this too and that they can reach out for help and no one will think they're a bad parent or a failure or bad in any way. And I say that as a clinical psychologist, as a professional who works with parents, because I have had lots of parents, lots of experience in my kind of therapy clinical world where parents don't want to tell me something that they're struggling with because they're scared that I'm going to judge them. And what tends to happen is, of course, there's no judgment. Like, that doesn't happen. What happens is they get support and I do my best to help them and navigate the struggle and get through the struggle. And they often will say, I wish I'd said this earlier. And so that's what I would say to a parent who's struggling. You're not going to get judged. Like, I know that's your fear or that, you know, something terrible will happen if you talk about the struggle you're having. In fact, if you talk to the right people, what you'll get is support. Like, I promise, it'll feel better. Um, and you're not alone with it. And when you talk to somebody else, again, it makes you feel held and like, you know, there's more people on your side and that can be helpful in itself. It's been amazing talking to you, Dr. Martha. Thank you so much. I feel like we could go on for another hour. <laughs> but um, yeah, so thank you. And all of those tips in, in your book are amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. So nice. You can read more of Dr. Martha's advice in collaboration with Bing on the Birmingham Live website, the Birmingham Mummies Facebook page, and by following her on Instagram. Look for Dr. Martha Psychologist. Please share this episode with anyone who may find it useful. Follow Birmingham Mummies on social media and sign up to our free newsletter. And remember, you can always send us a parent request as a direct message on Brummy Mummies and we'll share it anonymously for you. See you next time.